I was thinking about the Israelites. Why they're so, why they're so devoted to this? Why are they so pressing into to know God's will and to do it? To know God's priorities and to live in them. And that's the second thing I wanted us to spend some time thinking about in Nehemiah chapter 11 before we moved on to chapter 12 next week, and that is the priorities of God's people. Well, the overarching priority is to know God's will and to do it. And that is lived out now in this privilege. They have identified those who are to live in this holy city because there in this place, they are going to be making God and his ways known, not only among themselves and among God's people, but to all the other people around, around them. There's something that it seems like that we could learn from that, to, to know what it, what it takes, what's important in this matter of making God and his ways known among ourselves and to people around us who also need to know, who also have something within them wriggling and wiggling and tiggling that they can't reach anyway except by knowing God through Jesus. So, there's in Nehemiah chapter 11, after we get through the, 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 the flipping of the coin, the casting of the lots, there's, there's four roles that those who are going to live in Jerusalem, they're identified. And there's, there's a, a long list of names because within these roles there are people within the community of God's people, that these have historically been given to. So there's a, there's a historical, there's a, there's a biblical responsibility. For instance, there in the, when we get to the priest, Zadok is in there. And Zadok, that's the high priestly line that, that David established. And so there's, a, there's a, a pattern from the past that they're saying, we're going to go back into God's word from the past, and we're going to do it the way God said to do it as we go forward into the future. That's what's going on with all the list of names of genealogy. So as we read certain sections, I'm not going to read everybody who was the son of, who was the son of, who was the son of, but it's important that you get the point that what they're saying is, we traced this back, and that we're going to do it the way God said to do it. And so as we look for priorities of God's people, there's, we don't have a temple, we don't have these roles in the exact same way, and yet we do have a temple, and we do need these roles. So join me in Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11, which is introduced by Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will build God's temple. And there are four key roles the key roles, as I mentioned to the kids, they're strong men. Perhaps um, this is the National Guard. They're identified for us from verse 4. Let's jump into that first section. Again, I'm not going to read all the names of the sons of. I'm not trying to dodge the names. Well, to some extent I am. In chapter 11, in verse 4, In Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Those are the two tribes that came back, the, the southern part of Israel that came back from the Babylonian captivity. There was Athiah, the son of Uzziah, in verse 5, and Maasiah, the son of Baruch. And verse 6, all the sons of Perez, a son of Judah, so they traced all the way back, the sons of Perez were 468 valiant men. And verse 7, the sons of Benjamin, there was Salu, the son of Meshulam, and his brothers, men of valor, 
928 in verse 8. So although Benjamin's a smaller tribe, Benjamin has been largely insignificant in the southern kingdom's history after King Saul, they, that still 928 of them. So the bigger chunk of these men of valor, these valiant men. And that term is a, these are people you look up to. These are men that you esteem. These are heroes of the community. It was commonly used of those who were military fighting men, strong men, valiant warriors. It doesn't have to be that, but quite likely that's partially in mind here. It seems that in Jerusalem, you need able-bodied men. It's kind of like, did you know when you get on an airplane, the stewardess, the flight stewards, they are, they are checking out people as they're getting on. And one of the things they're looking for is their able-bodied passengers. They're looking for people that if there's trouble, if there's some kind of emergency, who are some able-bodied people that they can call on to help? Well, these are the able-bodied men of Jerusalem that when there is trouble, think of them like the national guard. They're the militia. They're the, going to be the ones to, to put down their regular work and to take up arms and to meet this opposition, this attack of an enemy as it comes wherever it comes from. We've seen that in the book of Nehemiah, that even though the good hand of our God is upon us, in fact, when the good hand of our God is upon us and he is leading us into his purposes in the midst of the world, those purposes will be opposed. There will be opposition. It'll come from a variety of directions, but there will be opposition. And so if they're going to reconstitute, if they're going to stand up Jerusalem, if they're going to establish this city as the center of God's purposes again, they're going to have to defend it. It is going to be opposed. And what's true of Israel then is true of us today, that we are also in a spiritual battle. Peter tells us that. And he tells us because we're in a spiritual battle that we need to prepare our minds for action. The Greek there in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 is to gird up the loins of your mind. That's a fun word picture there. Because it has the idea of, of the Roman soldiers wearing his tunic. Some of you can think, it's not pants, okay? It's a long robe that goes down to about the knees or so. But when you're in battle, you don't want that thing catching at your legs. And so if, when you're getting ready to go into battle, you pick up the tunic, you would pull it up, and you would tuck it into your leather belt. You would gird up your loins so that the tunic was out of the way, free movement of the legs during battle. Okay? So... God's word to us here by Peter is, men, tuck in your skirts. Pull up your skirts. Tuck them in. Get ready. But this is not a matter of what we're dressing, what we're going to wear. This is a matter of getting our minds ready, of, of being prepared in our minds, because that's where the battle is going to play out, that we are going to need to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. That's where the battle is. There is a battle, and so if we're going to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, we're going to need to desire the sincere milk of God's word so that we can grow by it. These are men who have grown strong and are able to stand fast. They're able to resist the enemy. We also enter a spiritual battle. The good hand of our God is upon us. He is upon us in his eternal life for us and through us. He is upon us in that the Spirit of God dwells within those who have been born again through faith in Jesus. 
The good hand of our God is upon us, but there will be opposition. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So stand fast in the power of the Lord, in the strength of his might. In Ephesians 6, Paul, Paul describes, he lays it out. What does it take? Take, take the, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. He said, have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Have your feet shod with the gospel of peace and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, God's truth. That leads us into the next role. That, that strength of those who, are, who have grown strong and are, and are able to stand fast, ready to resist the enemy's attack, well, that leads into that having, having your feet shod with the gospel, the, the sword of the Spirit in your hand. Because the next role I want to look at, that of the priest, these are the ones who keep the gospel at the center. Look again in chapter 11. Now just jump down to the priest in verse 10. So there were these strong men, the sons of Judah and Benjamin, both, both tribes, valiant men, men of valor. And alongside them, there were also, verse 10, of the priest. There's Jedidiah, the son of Jearib, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, in verse 12. And their brothers, who did the work of the house, 822. These are the ones, the priests are the ones who do the work of the house. I like the way that's said. They do the family business. This is God's family. The work of his house is the work of the priests. It's the work of a sacrifice. Hold on to that thought. There are others with them. There are also, verse 13, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. You see, not all of the priests lived in Jerusalem. It wasn't that Jerusalem is the, is the priestly place, that's the sacrifice place, that's what happens there, all the priests will live there. No, they live among the people in every town and village. And they rotate into Jerusalem for service and they rotate back to their communities. And they're also doing the teaching of the people, teaching God's word in those communities. It's another role of the priests as well as the Levites. And so the heads of the Father's house, they keep this organized. There's some organization, there's some intentionality of how they're going to do the work of the house. Okay? Let's talk about that for a minute. These are priests, and they do sacrifices. What are they doing, really? What is going on? Why does that priest offer a sacrifice day after day, year after year, when Hebrews tells us it could never take away sin? Why did they do it? Over and over again, because God told them to do it. Why did God tell them to do it? Because it is an object lesson. It is a portraying of the truth of the gospel. Every sacrifice that is offered is a confession of sin, a need for the covering of that sin, the payment for that sin. The cost of sin is death. Sin separates humanity from God. Every sacrifice is a confession that there is sin and there's the need for a substitute to take that sin upon itself, upon that offering, instead of the offerer, the one who brought it. Every sacrifice at the temple was a portraying of the gospel. Sacrifices that themselves could never take away sin, but which pointed to the lamb that God would provide. Ever since Abraham, when Abraham and Isaac came to that mountain upon which now the temple stood, and there Abraham thought he was going to be offering Isaac as a sacrifice, and God says, no, stop. 
Well, actually, before then, Isaac asked his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And And Abraham says these prophetic words, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Years later, that lamb, there's a substitute provided for Isaac that day. It's not a lamb, it's actually a ram. Years later, John the Baptist would point out on those same on those hills outside of Jerusalem, he would point to, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every one of those Old Testament sacrifices, every one of those offerings that the priest performed day after day, they portray the reality of the gospel, the reality of sin, and our need for a substitute, a need for a sacrifice in our place for our forgiveness and to be in right relationship with God. The job of the priests is to keep the gospel centered, is to keep the gospel at the center of the life of God's people. Now, what does that have to do with us? We do not have a temple. We do not have priests offering sacrifices. What does it have to do with us? Well, there's some corollary. In fact, there are churches that have picked up on this and said, you know, our spiritual leaders in our, in our worship, we're going to call them priests. So there are church, But I think those, I, I think they've missed it. Because actually, Peter addresses this as well. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up in the spiritual house. He, he, he agrees with Paul here, where Paul says that we are the temple of God. That God dwells within the individual believer, but that God also inhabits his people gathered together as a local congregation. That we are God's temple. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Verse, let's see, that's, that, that's 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2. Actually, the, the verse starts out, you yourselves like living stones. You yourselves, you're the one. It's not just somebody. God's people have a priesthood. What that means is that you and I, together, You and I together have the privilege of portraying the gospel of Jesus. You and I have the responsibility of keeping the gospel at the center. Priests portraying and proclaiming God's grace. The priests were the teachers of the people to proclaim God's grace. The priests themselves in their own daily work, they portrayed God's forgiveness and grace. As a priesthood, we offer sacrifices, don't we? Paul tells us in Romans 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Your work of worship, your serving of worship. And that actually leads us into the next one. Those who serve behind the scenes. The Levites, who were the professional servants of the Lord in his work of making his ways and himself known through his people to all the nations. The Levites are mentioned in verse 15. So we have the strong men, the men of valor, the valiant men who would, who would guard against attack. We have in verse um, 10 and following, we have the priests who are going to keep the gospel centered. In verse 15, we have the Levites. What do the Levites do? Well, out of the Levites, there's Shemaiah, and there's Shabbatai in verse 16, and Josabad of the chiefs of the Levites, so they're the 
organizers of all the other Levites, for what purpose? For this, who were over the outside work of the house of God. The inside work was the work in the holy place, in the holy of holies. The inside work was, the, was in the court of the priest with the sacrifices being offered. But the outside work was everything else around all the temple precincts that needed to be done so that that central work could happen. It was the providing of lambs, organizing of lambs for the daily sacrifices. It was perhaps wood for the altar. It was the organizing and the having ready and prepared and cleaned the utensils. The bringing of water for that big wash basin that was part of the temple worship. All of these other things, all of these serving needs so that the priests could do what they needed to do in the portraying, proclaiming of God's gospel to his people. It's interesting, all of this is to God's people first, and as they get it, it overflows out to others, and others are invited in to come and see this wonderful object lesson being lived out of God providing himself a sacrifice for sin, a substitute in our place. So you have the Levites. The Levites are like those who serve in all kinds of ways. You know, when I thought of this, one of the, one of the applications of that, one of the parallels into the church today that I thought of was deacons. Remember how when God first starts his church, and there are other needs that come up, and these needs have the danger of distracting from the central work of the, of the elders or apostles of the church at that time, which was, was um, prayer and the teaching of God's word. And so the, the, the apostles of the time said, choose for yourself seven servants. And as for us, we will devote ourselves, in Acts chapter 6, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those are priestly functions, aren't they? Prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, that I mean, doesn't mean that's just for elders, just for pastors. In fact, one of the next things you see happening in the book of Acts is these servants, these deacons that are chosen and appointed, you see them out evangelizing. Philip is one of those. Stephen is one of those. So it's not, it's not to say, that, no, 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 the whole gospel thing, that's for the elders or pastors. No, that's not the point at all. But we need to devote certain ones to this support work that is needed so that focus can be given to God's gospel. What you do matters even if it's behind the scenes. We need, God's work always need, for God and his ways to be known, there's always the need for those who serve behind the scenes. The loyal Levites who get it done. Loyal Levites who get it done. I mentioned the, the deacons as an example, but there are all kinds of ways so many within a church body serve. I think about maintenance needs. I think about building needs. Uh, there's administ all kinds of administrative tasks that need to be done. There's, there's support work like in the nursery. All kinds of things have to happen if we as a church community together are going to keep the gospel centered. If we're going to be preparing and equipping one another to stand against the opposition, the attacks of the enemy. In the midst of this, those who serve, and I described some of the ways that they serve, there's also the mention in verse 22 and 23, one of the deacon, or rather one of the Levite roles in verses 22 and 23 was the sons of the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, the sons of Asaph, the singers, 
over the work of the house of God. We've gone back to the sons of Asaph. Some of the Levites, not all of them, some of the Levites were in this section of the family called the sons of Asaph. And that goes all the way back to David and his Psalms. That was, think of the liturgical leaders, think of the worship leaders, think of the singers. In fact, this was so important that they were provided for. That there was an allowance given that the singers would sing, that worship would always be occurring at God's temple because, well, that tells us something too. That that all of our life is our expression of worship to God. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just those times when I'm intentionally doing something for God. All of my life actually is an expression of my worship to God. Some of it just expresses that worship more fully and wholeheartedly than other times. There's stuff that actually at other times all through the day gets in the way. Is that just me or is that you as well? The things that get in the way that you would say, well, that part of my life really wasn't expressive of worship to God. And yet the temple was to be a place of worship all the time, all day long. The singers would sing. Oh, we'd grab those sons of Asaph, that section of the Levite family, and we'd say, there is our worship team. You would get into chapter 12, and there's going to be these grand choirs that are going to march around the wall and meet in the middle. And I can't wait to see what Pastor Evan's going to do with our church. He's going to have us rise up and gather. I don't know what that's going to look like. But there will be singing. There will be worship next week as we're in Nehemiah chapter 12. Think of vocalists and musicians and, and uh, those who, who work sound tech and audiovisuals. All of these things are also an important aspect of serving together in a church community so that God and his ways can be known among his people and also to others. But things get in the way. My whole life isn't always expressive of, the, of, of my worship to God in the ways that I would want it to. Other things leak in. Other things sneak in. Other things distract. And so there's a need to guard the gates. They have gatekeepers. Now, gatekeepers has all kinds of different connotations today. I want to focus on guarding the gates, who gets in the temple precincts, and who or what does not. Verse 19, the gatekeepers, there's Akub and Talman and their brothers who kept watch at the gates. There were 172. This was also a priority. There will be those who guard the gates. Those who guard the gates to be careful who and what is let in. I was thinking in my mind here, as I was drawing some parallels, well, there is the temple, and that we together as a church community are the temple of the living God, that my own life, indwelled by the Spirit, my life is a temple of God's presence. And so there should be worship there. And what does that look like? And how does it go? And what kind of distractions? And I thought to myself, imagine the temple courts. And imagine the temple courts, which are supposed to be centered on, oriented towards, and focused in this sacrificial system that is portraying that the Son of God himself would come and visit into our humanity and take humanity upon himself and would then bear all of the guilt and shame and sin of humanity so that he dies as our substitute in our place. That everything about that temple is is focused toward that center stage where that is daily portrayed. 
And imagine if things got chaotic in those temple courts. Imagine if they just let anybody in and have the run of the place. Imagine there's stray feral cats going here and there, and there's these rangy um, mutts that are chasing the cats, and there's, there's all kinds of people coming in and setting up stalls to, you know, get your little model of the temple here and take it back with you, and, and uh, changing money from whatever. Oh, wait a minute, that sounds like something Jesus ran into. My house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned it in to a Roman marketplace. A place where you will take advantage of. A place where you will distract people away from worship in ways that will serve your ambitions instead. You've turned it into a den of thieves, Jesus said. And he was angry about it. It's one of the few times we really see Jesus worked up. I mean, he's driving them out with whips. This was not the, the um, calm and gentle, welcoming and inviting Jesus. No, this was, this was Jesus angry. It's because look what's happened. Look at the chaos that is in his, his courts. And imagine in my mind, without gatekeepers, without godly gatekeepers who are, who are guarding the gates so that the wrong things don't get in and distract from or actually even displace worship which is supposed to be what's going on. I said, well, what would it look like if my, if my soul, my heart, was a bit more chaotic, like all of that ruckus going on in the temple courts? I was sharing this with Pastor Ryan because many of my good ideas actually come from Pastor Ryan. And, and he was saying, that's good. That actually, that, that's impactful. He said, but can you get it a little closer into into?" where we're at because most of us have never visited temple courts like that. That image just doesn't quite make it. So I imagine this. This last week, somebody in Colorado, Breckenridge Ski Resort, nice place I understand, they woke up to a moose in their basement. Now how did the moose get in the basement? Well, actually, they had, they had those, those um, well windows, those basement wells where you have a carve-out so that you can get daylight into the basement. And uh, the moose fell down in one of those and in the window and down onto the floor, couldn't get himself back up to climb out the window well, so the moose is stuck in the basement. Now, if you're a moose stuck in somebody's basement, what are you going to do? It's kind of like a bull in a china shop, a moose in the basement. It's a similar analogy, and that's what happened. You see this picture, and the picture is actually kind of dark. There's this bright light hanging there, but there's broken furniture and stuff kicked up and turned upside down, and I'm sure the moose made a mess. And, and he, 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 he didn't climb stairs, so they had no idea how they were going to get the moose. That's the problem. You let a moose into your basement, and now you've got to figure out mooses aren't so easy to get out of the basement once you get them in, Okay? Well, that got me thinking, well, we don't have a lot of moose around here. But what if you woke up in the morning and you came out to your kitchen and there was a lot of squealing and chattering going on and you came up to your kitchen and you saw this. That happened too. I had one more picture with this one raccoon. The one raccoon that didn't want to leave, he's hiding behind the toaster oven. They want to go. I mean, the food's good here. There's running water. We can wash. Everything's good. Why would they want to leave? You let raccoons into your kitchen, and it's going to be a mess getting them to leave. Somebody might get scratched. Somebody might get bit. 
That's an illustration of what it looks like when we, when we don't guard the gates of our own lives, guard the gates of our own hearts, guard the gates of our own souls. There's, a, there's an illustration John Bunyan used in his book, The Holy War. And if, if you know of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you know how he sets an allegory of, of Pilgrim on a journey and these different people he meets and places he goes. And the Holy War is something like that. talks about this needing to um, uh, be able to be strong and resist, to uh, grow strong, to stand fast and resist the enemy. But in this section, he, he describes humanity like a city. He says, this famous town of Mansoul. Bunyan's very subtle, isn't he? This famous town of Mansoul had five gates in at which to come or out of which to go. And these gates were impregnable, such as never could be opened nor forced, but by the will and leave or permission of those within. He goes on to describe the gates. In his analogy, he describes the gates as the ear gate, the eye gate, the mouth gate, and so on. The five senses that we interact with the world around us, these are gateways into our heart, into our soul. What do we allow in? What do we allow in? The gates... Mark out that God's holy city is just that. It's holy. It's separate. It's different. Nehemiah requires the sellers to to stay outside the city. And people can go out through the gate and do buying and selling. But those sellers from other places, they're not allowed into God's holy, unique city. Because this city is, is intended for something else. Something special. Jesus cleansed his father's house twice. The beginning and end of his ministry from the profiteering that made God's house look more like a market. We are that temple. His spirit dwells within us. What do you let into your life that really doesn't belong in a life devoted to God? Why is it that sometimes in my day, my life doesn't so well reflect, as I described, doesn't always reflect the worship of God that I want it to? It actually, the inventory of my hours, the inventory of my minutes does reflect, and I'm not saying it all needs to be spent in song and psalms and raising of hands and bending of knee. I'm not saying that. Worship God in your work. Worship God in how you care for your family. Worship God in changing the diaper. Absolutely. Worship God in thankful rest. But there are times in my day when it does not reflect the worship of God that I would intend. And yet the, the record of the minutes or hours or, or occasions is an accurate reflection. And I want to worship more. I want to worship more holy, more devoted. I want to let in fewer raccoons and more of what belongs there. Who do you let in? You know, Paul, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, bad company corrupts good morals. Who do you let in? It's one thing to, have in, to, be, to be with people and to have friends because you want to be an influence upon them. You want to share the gospel with them. But it's another thing when friends that you have are the ones who are influencing you. Guard against that. I, I was thinking of the time when 
our kids and our grandson Jamie were here, and Jamie has a phrase. Jamie will ask to do something. Oh, Grandpa really didn't want to do that. And you know what Jamie says? Come on, guys. It'll be fun. He's, he's, he's three and a half years old, and he's already learned how to manipulate and, 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 and cajole you into doing something you really didn't want to do. And he heard that from his parents because his parents have a middle school group. And, the, and they're, they, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. And the kids don't want to do it. They say, oh, come on, guys, it'll be fun. So Jamie's picked up on that. And Jamie's learned how to use that phrase, and he's got the salesman smile. Come on, guys, it'll be fun for him. Yeah. Who do you let influence you? They tell you, oh, come on. It'll be fun. What about the gossip or slander that you hear, that you give your ear to? Or the values in music? You know, I, I, I enjoy listening to what would be considered today classic rock. I find it immensely amusing that the music of my high school era, as, as um, Shameful as it was, is considered the classic music today because I guess there's not any good music being produced today out in the culture. I don't know why that is. But anyway, I digress. I like that music. I find myself, I want to listen to it. And yet as I listen to it and as I listen to the words that are said, even the words that I'm singing is like, this is horrible. And yet I remember those songs. I let the raccoons in and I can't get them out. What do we let in that is going to be hard for us to get back out again? John tells us in 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things of the world. What are those things of the world that he says don't love, don't get sucked in by? The desires of the flesh, the desires of your eye and the pride of life. What will others think about me? Things I see that I want, covetousness, again, a lot of my good stuff comes from Ryan. Ryan pointed out to me this week, he said, I know when I've been on my phone too long. Can I share this, Ryan? I know when I've been on my phone too long, he said, when I'm feeling dissatisfied. I'm just feeling like I, because you're inundated with ads that are intended to make you dissatisfied. And he said, I know I've been there too long because the ads will keep popping up with no matter what you're looking at. And they're intended to get you to want the desires of the eyes, the desires of our flesh. Okay, it might be the same phone. Speaking to our, our, our human, our human appetites. Now, Americans have a, have a problem with human appetites in the sense of food. And we love to eat. And we don't care if it's healthy or not. We just love to eat. And all oh, that tastes good. Okay, there's something to learn from that. Guarding the gate. What do we let in? And yet at the same time, there's, there's, there's something about self-control. If I could go from food to fasting, not as, a, not as a diet control thing at all, but that intentional resisting of the natural and normal desires of my physical, fleshly humanity. It wants to eat, and yet it needs to be deprived. I need to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. And that doesn't mean experience some pain, and that's going to be the answer to the spiritual life. But I do need to learn how to deny myself. And the spiritual discipline, exercise of fasting, what it does is it builds muscles. It builds muscles of spiritual discipline. 
because there are other things also that my spirit needs the discipline to say no to. I need to guard the gates. We live in a very sensual culture, not unlike the culture that Paul wrote to in Corinth. And there was a saying going around in, in Corinth that Paul had to answer. And that saying was, well, gee, you know, these are just normal bodily appetites. Everybody craves this. They said, it's, it's kind of like food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And Paul answers that. Okay, food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. But he says, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. I want to be a temple devoted to the Lord. I want my life in all of its expression, to be some expression of natural, normal, lived-out human worship of the God who redeemed me and gave me life. I don't want some of it to just not belong there at all, but to be opposed, to drag me back into the muck, the mire from which he has lifted me up and out. The desires of our eyes... This is every man's battle. Job put it this way. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze upon a woman? I made a covenant. That's a worship relationship word, isn't it? I've made a covenant with my eyes. With my eyes and what I look at, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to guard the gates concerning what I let in. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul says, If you then risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And while we are in this world and not yet above, Peter told us, prepare your minds for action. Men, tuck in your skirts. Blaise Pascal said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man. I think I shared this with the kids. It's because Blaze was sitting there. There's a heart-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by our Creator God, who made us for Himself, to be in relationship with Himself, to be known to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in His name. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, our Savior. That sacrifice which the priests portray to give us new life in relationship with you, a life in which we can stand fast against the enemy and his attacks, a life in which we can be loyal servants who will carry out your work in this broken and needy world. Lord, and by whose grace we can guard the gates to our own soul. Because this is your place. Father, you've made, you've made our hearts for you. You've made our hearts that you would live there with us. Oh, Father, let us clear the distractions, those that would draw us away. Let us instead, Father, Live more in your worship. And Father, we pray that in the, re in, the, in, the, in the real expression of worship in our life, through the day, in seeking to follow you, that others around us, 
would see us. Others around us would give us the opportunity to give an answer for the hope that is within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.